0: Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today I'm joined again by the charming and intelligent King Bolingbroke, who by this point now holds the endowed chair of anonymous Shakespeare studies at MCC. Monsieur Bolingbroke,
1: how are you? Uh, it, it is an honor. It is an honor to be given this uh, illustrious title. I'm wonderful. How are you? Yeah, I wanted to surprise you live with the title um, and not talk to you about it beforehand. Um, so. I, I expect that my check is in the mail uh, that, that comes with this, my, my endowment check.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. I'm sure the endowers um, have already sent it. Um. Excellent. <laughs> so today we will discuss Act Two of Shakespeare's uh, perhaps his greatest play, but we can surely say a great play, King Lear you can find our discussion of the first act linked on the Substack page. There, we discuss self-knowledge, nature, and politics, among other things. We want to center today's discussion on Kent, the loyal and eventually disguised servant of King Lear. And so, we will dip back into a couple of moments from Act 1 that we didn't discuss last time to help set up our account of Kent in Act 2. Next time, as Bolingbroke has suggested, we will focus on King Lear himself Um, and his madness. And so we might return to some parts of Act 2 while we principally focus on Act 3 next time. Um, I want to say that my thoughts um, have here been considerably assisted by the observations made in the scholar Michael McShane's article, Kent's Obscured Course, which I will link as well, and which I highly recommend to your attention. Um, Sometimes I think it's better to say true things rather than new things. And so since I learned a lot of things from this article, I don't see a reason to you know, uh, try to say something original if you know, this guy McShane said a lot of cool stuff that um, strikes me as true. So at any rate, um, the thesis of his paper, just to say it in briefer in one sentence, is that we have long loved a Kent that we never really knew. He is not plain, blunt, or rash, as many claim that he is, and as he sometimes says of himself. Rather, he is deceptive, reserved, and controlled. Now, before we jump into talking about Kent, here is a brief overview of Act 2. In the first scene, Edmund successfully convinces his father, Gloucester, that his legitimate brother, Edgar, wishes to kill Gloucester. Edgar flees. Then, uh, Kent meets Goneril's servant, Oswald, outside of Gloucester's castle uh, in the second scene. He noisily beats him up, and after exchanging harsh words with Regan and Cornwall, He is punished by being put in the stocks. In the next scene, we see that Edgar has escaped and that he will disguise himself as a beggar. In the final scene of Act 2, Lear comes to Gloucester's castle, and so too does Goneril, although it seems like Albany maybe doesn't. Uh, Lear is outraged at the treatment of Kent, and his daughters deprive him of any comfort uh, should he wish to retain his knights. Then Lear departs and heads out to the heath. Um, just for starters, before we talk about Act One, Scene One, are there any crucial details, Bowling Brook, that you would like to add, or any introductory thoughts that you would like to add?
1: Uh, no, I think I think you would cover it well. And since since we're not going to discuss it much, maybe just a brief comment on um, Edmund, Edgar, and Gloucester. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edmund goes to Edgar and pretends that he's. Helping him, Which he sort of does in, in act one as well, but he, he goes further in this and he says, okay, we now have to make it seem like you are attacking me and that I am trying to stop you from going to kill our father. And so that, so we have to do this play act mm-hmm. thing. And Edgar seems to have no idea what's going on, sort of mm-hmm. plays along with Edmund. And then uh, Edmund yells, okay, run away. But he has his father sitting off in the distance watching um, or rather he's, his father's nearby so that he can shout. And, uh, mm. he says that, uh, Edmund has, or excuse me, Edgar has run away and they have to go find him. Um, pretends that he's been cut, cuts himself on the arm. Um, I think in that scene, he demonstrates that he's not all that good of an actor, but he just thinks everybody's an idiot around him. Mm. Uh, one, one of the things that he does is after he cuts the arm, he insists on everybody's they're coming and They're like, okay, where did he go? He says he went that way. And they're like, is anybody chasing him? And instead of like being in the moment, you know, if he had really fought him and he was really in the moment, he probably wouldn't stop to say, Look, my arm is bleeding. But he's trying to make his um story seem more convincing. And it ends up, in my opinion, when I read it, it just uh it's it's heavy-handed, it's not very well executed. And so he just ends up looking like, Why are you talking about your the scratch on your arm when right. when supposedly a murderer is abroad in the land? Um, so we, we see that he's already his, his, I would say his, uh, hubris or his, his pompousness is, is already starting to cause some problems for him. He's, he's coming to the surface a little bit. So that would be the only thing that we're not really going to discuss it so much in this episode, but so that it doesn't get passed over, my mm-hmm. opinion of Edmund has gone down each time that I've read this play. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's interesting, but I don't think he's as smart as he's giving credit for sometimes. Right.
0: Well, maybe I could offer like a one agreeing remark and then one slight disagreement is I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you that he's overselling the wounding himself story or that he thinks that that needs to be somehow the center of the story. Because I think Gloucester even interrupts Edmund, like Edmund's trying to explain this. And like Gloucester at that moment does not care. Mm-hmm. If like it, it's, it's not a mortal wound. Like I don't care. Where is this guy? And you almost mm-hmm. get the sense like, why aren't you chasing this guy? if you've been onto him um, and also is like Edmund presents himself like, yeah, you know, the fight, as soon as he saw that I was willing to fight after he wounded me, that's when he started running away. Um, almost like my prowess in combat is so impressive that like the second that he thought that I would fight him, then he ran. And then, so you don't chase him. So right. I think that makes, yeah. I, I agree with you that that looks kind of thin. Maybe the only clever thing he does to me in the scene is something like he says that, Or he emphasizes in his speech to Gloucester that Edgar thought that because Edmund is a bastard, his word would mean nothing to Gloucester. And I do wonder if by emphasizing that, to some extent, that moves Gloucester to accelerate or, you know, do something a little bit sooner than he would have otherwise in making saying, you know what, Edmund, you have to be the successor to me and not your brother or, you know... um, so, so that that I kind of admire him for now maybe that didn't wasn't the decisive point in moving him, but I think he emphasizes, you know what my he called me a bastard and said he wouldn't believe me
1: um i, so I agree with
0: that. that yeah but but nevertheless yeah the 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 bleeding story at the beginning um not as convincing so um in act one scene one, this is the first scene, so Kent. We see him at the very beginning of the play. Um, Bolingbroke, could you say a little bit about how Shakespeare presents Kent in this scene and what kind of man that we should think that he is um, in this scene?
1: Yeah. So we mentioned a little bit in the first podcast that the very, very beginning of the play has Gloucester and Kent discussing the division of the kingdom before any of it has technically been made public. Um, Mm -hmm. And so apparently Kent is very, very close with the King and mm-hmm. as is Gloucester because they both are very familiar with what's about to happen. And they know that this is some sort of a, a show trial or something that they're, this is, this is a technicality of formality in order to give the people, give the rewards that Lear already wants to give that he's premeditated upon. But they're discussing the relative merit of the people and the appearances versus the reality with what the King is doing. And Mm -hmm. Kent is, seems perceptive Mm -hmm. and seems uh, smart and careful in his speech at the very beginning of the play. Um, And this is all that we get from him at the very beginning. After this Lear comes in and he takes over the scene, everything is then Lear and his daughters and their discussion that dominates the the rest of the scene until um until lear is going to banish cordelia so mm-hmm. starting in around line 134 at least in the uh in the folger edition mm-hmm. kent tries to interrupt lear and say something lear stops him uh keeps railing against cordelia and after that speech kent jumps in once more mm-hmm. and starts to speak and he's trying to stop him saying, Lear, you're being rash. You need to slow down. You need to understand that I love you. And before he can finish this again, Lear stops him and he says, be careful about the next thing you say. Mm-hmm. He says it in, in a more poetic language, but he tells him the, the next thing that you say could determine that, uh, what happens to you. Right. And this is where Kent is given his initial, reputation. So the traditional view of Kent is that he is rash and plain and honest and loyal and aggressive. And that he, everything about him is right on the surface, that he's a bleeding heart and he wears his heart on his sleeve and he's not going to let justice pass. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, this speech is where that starts to be the case. So starting at 161 he says so the king says the bow is bent and drawn make from the shaft in other words get out of the way i'm going to shoot you and mm-hmm. you're going to get be hit with cordelia if you don't get out of my way and kent says let it fall rather though the fork invade the region of my heart be kent unmannerly when Lear is mad what wouldst thou do old man Thinkst thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows to plainness honors bound when majesty falls to folly. Reserve thy state, and in thy best consideration check this hideous rashness. Answer my answer my life, my judgment. Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least, nor are those empty hearted whose low sounds reverb no hollowness. Mm-hmm. And so Kent he gives this impassioned and certainly aggressive, and it could seem rash, defense of Cordelia. Mm-hmm. Um, Lear gives him one more chance Kent on thy life no more uh, and Kent responds we, we brought this passage out in the last episode as well my life mm-hmm. I never held but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies nor fear to lose it thy safety being motive and so Kent is trying to make an argument to Lear that what I am doing right now is in your service I right. am putting my life on the line to your rage because your rage is going to harm you And I'm trying to save you from yourself. And if I can save you from yourself, I can save the kingdom. And so Mm -hmm. this is the first thing about the context, what we see in Kent that's important. He seems very subtle and uh, courtier and like he's thought through these plans and he has opinions about these things and is going to be very cautious. And nevertheless, he steps in and he speaks out here Mm -hmm. because he sees the seriousness of this situation. He sees the danger that Lear is in. And so, from the outset, comparing this Kent to the Kent we're going to look at in just a minute, it's a little bit of a disservice, I think, to the initial Kent. Um, right. He, he is only doing this, in his opinion, to save the king, to save the kingdom. Um, and Lear uh, rages at Kent, and he ends up... So so it conti- it, Kent doesn't stop, and this is the part where you could maybe say he's a little bit rash or a little bit over aggressive. King says out of my sight. Uh, he tells Lear that he's being foolish. Lear tries to make an oath by Apollo. Kent interrupts him and hmm. tells him that he is taking the name of Apollo in vain uh, with the Ten Commandment uh, with a Ten Commandment reference that is a bit of a uh, anachronism and. Hmm. As we mentioned again in the in the last episode. Wow. And uh he he again reminds Lear, I'm the one who's trying to save you. Lear he finally gets Kent to shut up. <laughs> um and he punishes him. He's gonna send him away from the kingdom. And this is the, the final the final moment here is a transition moment because Kent goes from being the king's trusted advisor to being banished, right? The king he says you have to get out of here. If I see you, um, what is it, Uh, six days. If I see you six six days from now in my kingdom, you're going to be killed. So you have that, Mm -hmm. you have until then to get out of here. Um, Line 204, Kent says, Fare thee well, king. Sith thou thus, thus thou wilt appear, freedom lives hence and banishment is here. To Cordelia, the gods to their dear shelter take thee maid that justly thinks and hast most rightly said to, to Goneril and Regan, and you your large speeches, may your deeds approve, that good effects may spring from words of love. Thus Kent, O oh princes, bid you all adieu, he'll shape his old course in a country new. Um, an interesting note from that article that uh, we mentioned at the top, that last little bit sounds like Kent is going to be obedient and leave, but if we remember, uh, Lear has just reshaped the kingdom. There is no lo- he's no longer the king, and it's split in two uh, rather than being one United Britain. And mm-hmm. so when he says he's going to go to a country new, uh, he could just as easily stay right where he is as he could um, go to uh, France, which which may be implied with him saying you do. And that is what he does. He ends up staying in in Britain and disguising himself. And so uh, there's a subtlety in his speech here that again commends to us Kent's intelligence and his prudence. Mm -hmm. Right. So
0: yeah, I, I, yeah, I was really struck by that line and also the explanation from the article, like he'll shape his old course in a country new, as you pointed out. And so, yes, on one hand, that's manifestly a lie. It's not true insofar as he remains in his country and he doesn't go to France. But on the other hand, there's something true about it insofar as England's about to be put into a kind of tumult that will make it into a new country, that is moving in a way from yeah, one form to another. Um, but I think something I thought was kind of elegant in the article was that Shakespeare kind of gives us an easy, like a kind of slow ball or a change up or something. Well, maybe a change up could trick you, but and maybe this does trick people, but at any rate, we see something kind of easy that, like, it's clear that this is a lie, um, and so it prepares us to see that Kent might not be completely straightforward in the future. So this one's easy to catch. Maybe some of his other deceptions are more difficult to catch, but that, or, or maybe you could put it like this: Shakespeare gives us training wheels with Kent the first time um, and assists us. Like, if he's an educator of his readers, then maybe it's it's generous of him. Not to start initially at the most complex, you know, level, but sort of prepares us to see more complex passages later. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I think that's right. That's that's a good thought.
0: Yeah. So, um, is there anything else to say about one one, or should we turn to one four?
1: Um, I- unless you have anything else, I think I think that I'm good. I think we can move to one four. Okay. So. In Act
0: 1, Scene 4, Kent has donned his disguise as the simple and honest Caius. Um, To some extent, you could call this scene, as uh, McShane does, Kent's kind of job interview with Lear. Um, Insofar as, as far as Lear is concerned, he has not met this man who wants to be in his service. And so, I don't know, if you're a guy who's used to being a king and somebody wants to be part of your service, you probably scrutinize them fairly carefully. So, Kent's task here is not necessarily a simple one. Um, But uh, let's look at his soliloquy at the beginning of uh, Act 1, Scene 4. So Kent says, If, but as well, I other accents borrow that can my speech diffuse, my good intent may carry through itself to that full issue for which I raised my likeness. Now banished Kent. If thou canst serve where thou dost stand, condemned, so may it come, thy master, whom thou lovest, shall find thee full of labors. So there's a lot uh, to say about this. But I suppose you can say, like, if you wanted to make the case that Kent was just a simply honest or blunt or straightforward or rash person, this would sort of suggest that that's not at all the case if he sort of says, I can put on different accents almost like he can put on different disguises or present himself in um, very different ways. Um, and and Bolenbrook, I think before we started talking about this, or like before we started recording, you had said something about maybe the impressiveness of Kent's disguise. Um, could you maybe say a little bit about that right now? Like why, what would lead us to expect that there's something kind of impressive about the
1: disguise or the way
0: that he's able to present himself in a different accent?
1: Yeah. So what he's doing in this scene, as you say, it's a job interview with Lear. He wants to, he, he runs away saying, I'm exiled, I'm leaving the country. And then he comes back and finds Lear and wants to serve him in disguise. It seems evident that Kent, because he, he doesn't seem to have any status in the kingdom. He's a servant of some kind, but he has this uh, almost un unparalleled access to the king and this closeness and this familiarity with what's going on at the court that suggests the king has known him for a very long time. And so if he were to go up to Lear in a fake mustache and a a wig or whatever his disguise is, um, when I saw this on stage, they had him wearing uh, long hair at the beginning of the play and then it's short hair later, and that's the difference. Or maybe he he shaved a beard as well or something. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if he shows up with a phony mustache to Lear and is essentially the same person, then Lear's going to be like, K- Kent, why are you wearing that mustache? Right? He's going <laughs> to know who he is, but he's able to not only disguise his appearance, but disguise his personality and his voice and his behavior in such a way that Lear doesn't suspect anything at any point in this until mm-hmm. Kent reveals himself much later in the play. Right. Uh, spoiler alert. But, uh, <laughs> but this, this, uh, I think also speaks to the thesis that traditionally in Shakespeare scholarship, people say Kent and Caius, who is the servant that he, the, the persona he puts on are the same, that they have the same, uh, likeness. And we'll see why people might say that. But I think that this fact alone argues that that just can't be the case or people would know who he was. Right.
0: Right. And, and i think we talked about this a little bit last time that lear seems to be closest to, to cordelia and kent who though maybe they're not perfect characters or something like that they're both impressive characters and so there's a way in which lear was correct in judging kent and cordelia as best that that like he had a clear sighted or at least sufficiently clear account of like who is the best and who he should honor the most or keep closest to him so then it would be remarkable that kent could disguise himself in this scene and and there's a kind of a a delightful line where Kent shortly after the soliloquy when Kent when Lear begins to ask him questions Kent says I do profess to be no less than I seem and like at first it seems like as the article points out that seems like a self-deprecating line like whoa you're no less than you seem but if you read that in a strict sense um, you're kind of making a claim to be equal to or greater than the way that you sing. because you're not less, but you could be more. So it's like another line where Kent seems to be saying one thing, but in a way, quietly suggests um, that he's more than meets the eye. Uh, here, which is kind of a nice line as far as that goes. Now, something Bolingbroke. Now we didn't talk about this beforehand, but that I did wonder in this scene: is it is it possible that the fool has some sense that this is? Kent, Because I think the fool's first line when he enters, so Lear's kind of calling for the fool and Lear's starting to hate the fact that his commands don't seem to issue in any effect in the world. Like, why isn't the fool coming when I'm asking about him? But when the fool comes on stage, the first thing that he says um, is, so enter the fool. The fool says, let me hire him too, referring to Kent in disguise here's my coxcomb, which is to say his cap or his hat. And he goes on to, again, say like, you should take my hat. And I don't know. I kind of wondered if that was the fool sort of saying to Kent, like your disguise isn't quite good enough. Like it should be a little bit better um, or be careful.
1: Um, right. That, Cause why, why would he, I mean, he, of course he, he makes his explanation um, that it's well, it's because you're, you're a fool because you're serving somebody who, um, isn't a King, right? This is somebody who's out of favor and you're hiring out for service with him. But, but that he addresses Kent before he says anything to the King when it's been two days since the King has seen him, (laughs) uh, does seem like he's trying to be like, Hey buddy, I recognize you. So I, I can, I can see that as, as at least plausible. It's not, it's not terribly provable, but it is plausible. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, Yeah,
0: I think uh, maybe one other line that this is a line that the fool says to Lear um, at the bottom of that same page. So, but he knows that Kent's listening, but just the first two things when he says, have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest. Now, again, this is again, perhaps reading too much into it, but I I did almost like wonder if that is a kind of like quiet thing to Kent of like, dude. You know, be careful about these things. Like almost like he's teaching him to be even more esoteric or more disguised than he is, or warning him about that. But I mean, there seems to be other imports to that line. Like I think, as you were already pointing out, that the fool is trying to tell Ken, or trying to tell Lear, dude, you really screwed up. Like you need a lot of help um, to figure out what to do with your life. And giving away this uh, kingdom was a big mistake.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll add that when we get to discussion of what happens with, uh, what happens with Kent uh, when he, when he goes to Gloucester's home, I think that that, that scene, we can, we can draw out some other comparisons with the fool that demonstrates that they are embarr- He and the fool are united in their mission, whether they recognize each other or not. Um, okay.
0: Right. Right. So, so then let's turn to um, act two scene two where Kent uh, is supposed to be delivering a letter from Lear uh, to Reagan and Cornwall. Um, maybe, maybe I can just read this speech. I love just like, the first speech that Kent makes to Oswald. Oswald is Goneril's servant who is also giving a letter uh, to Goneril or sorry to Reagan and Cornwall, but a, uh, After a brief exchange, Kent says this to Oswald. Oswald says, what dost thou know me for? And Kent says, a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted stocking knave, a lily-livered, action-taking, whoresome, glass-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue, one trunk inheriting slave, one that would be a bod in, in in way of good service, and art nothing but the composition of a knave, beggar, coward, pander, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch, one whom I will beat into clamorous whining if thou denyest the least syllable of thy addition. Okay, so, uh, Bloomberg, this is this doesn't sound like a man in control of himself, like. Or is he? Like, what, what's, what's going on in Act 2, Scene 2? I think there's, like, a lot of different possibilities to think through. But why would Kent be so ostentatiously and spectacularly rude in this kind of way? Why does he then go on to beat Oswald? Um, what is he doing? What, what does he hope to accomplish in Act 2, Scene 2? Since I think, as you rightly said, he and the Fool seem to be, in a way, on the same mission. They both want to help Lear. So assuming that Kent's intention is to help Lear in what way could this possibly help Lear why is beating up Oswald outside of Gloucester's palace and treating him like a worthless mongrel dog um,
1: or like a slave like what what's he doing so i'll I'll set the table a little bit with this mm-hmm. there's there's a couple things that are important here uh First from the, again, from the article we mentioned at the top, um, it's possible that he is involved in some beneath the surface political activity. And I, I think, um, undeniably in the text, he is already in contact with Cordelia by this point, and he mm-hmm. is already trying to convince her to come back and do what she ultimately does attempt to do with, with France's power and, um, defeat her her errant sisters and what what comes after that kent probably would have lear be on the throne uh france would probably have himself be on the throne and cordelia uh it, it remains to be seen we we could we can't say because uh the the play doesn't go doesn't go the way that that one might hope so mm-hmm. there's there's already this this coup discussion that's happening the article suggests that what Kent is doing here is trying to engage in a political activity that's going to further this action, that he's trying to prepare the prepare the ground for this coup. Um, and so, what what he does, like, okay, just just from from the outset, he shows up. Oswald says, "Hey, where can I put my horse?" And Kent starts screaming at him, like mm-hmm. it's it it doesn't. It's just like total insanity. It's like he, it's like he can't control himself. And the claim, at least if you if you look at the text, the only plausible claim that Kent makes for this behavior is that Oswald doesn't recognize him. <laughs> that that he he beats up Oswald, and then Oswald says, "I don't know who you are." And he says, "Well, you better know who I am because I once tripped you at your uh, at your mistress's house, and and you I deserve more recognition from you." So it could just be that he, his honor has been has been upset. Mm -hmm. Uh, This doesn't make sense, first of all, because he's a servant. Mm -hmm. And second of all, this is the rashness where they they try and say, this is the same Kent that interrupted Lear and tried to stand up for Cordelia. But the stakes Mm -hmm. are so different here. The Mm -hmm. situation is so different. Um, And this Caius, he's being aggressive and ridiculous with every single person he talks to in this scene as well. All of the nobles as well as Oswald. Uh, to the point that it seems as if he wants to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's almost hard to avoid that possibility that she, uh, he he's trying to convince the nobles to do something to him. Like you know, it's it's a. Uh, I, I think of I think of uh, on the <laughs> there's there's an episode of The Office when Michael's trying to get Toby fired and he's told that one way he can get him fired is if he commits violence at work. And so he goes up and he knocks things out of his hands and he's insulting him and he's like, "Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You going to punch me?" And he's trying to get him to punch him. It feels a little bit like that. And so then the question is why would he do this? Um right. I'll I'll make one suggestion and then I'll let I'll leave to you a little bit more um you 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 pulled some things out that I think relating to the, the upcoming coup that I think are helpful. But I think that the fool, his mission is constant from the moment he shows up on stage for the first time is telling Lear you screwed up royally and your life and kingdom are in danger. Mm-hmm. You are out of favor with both of your daughters and you don't seem to realize it. You have gotten rid of the only daughter who loved you. And you, I mean, you're starting to realize it, but you, you, you don't seem to understand the gravity of that. And beyond this, I don't think that the power that you have now is going to last. And he's just telling him this over and over again in different ways. And he wants to remind him of it at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, it If we take Kent as trying to help Lear to come to this conclusion as well, so that when Cordelia returns for this coup or whatever, he's happy to see her. Then what he does is he shows up and he behaves in the way that Lear has been behaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, pompous over the top and uh, not prudent, not thinking about how to approach the situation delicately, but just approaching it like a bull in a China shop. And the result being that you break things. And so he goes and it's like he said to himself, okay, what can I do to demonstrate to Lear how bad things really are? Mm-hmm. I know I'll get put in the stocks and I'll get left there so that when he shows up, he finds me in the stocks and he says, as Lear does, this is as bad as putting me in the stocks. Why are you in the stocks? Right. And the, and, and Kent has to reply, well, you know, uh, he, he, and, uh, one other evidence that he is maybe not being fully truthful in his actions when he provokes Oswald and gets put in the stocks, uh, he doesn't tell Lear exactly what happens. He changes the story. Oh, well, I showed up and they were trying to turn everybody against you. And because I saw them doing this and there were these letters that they were reading that were turning everybody against you, I I did what I could to try and prevent them. And, and, you know, I I lost my temper a little and I attacked Oswald. And so he he retells the story to make it seem as if all I was doing was defending you and your interests and this is what they did to me. And so- it's this uh, visual political lesson of this is the situation you are in. You and I are mm-hmm. in this together and I needed to show you. And this is, this is the best way I could think to show you. So that's, that's my uh, piece that I would add to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot in what you said. So I think you had drawn our attention back to act one, scene one and how there's a connection between uh, Kent's, apparent rashness in speaking to Lear when he does and then also Caius's alleged rashness here in act two scene two but it it makes me think in like act one scene one now that you say that that Kent wasn't being rash I just wonder maybe if he saw like a crucial moment of just like if I assert my will now like and really try to bring home Before it's too late, before the kingdom is officially divided, before Cordelia is banished or, you know, put out onto the streets, um, uh, dowerless, I have to do something now. And maybe I can change things, especially because Lear does trust me. Now it doesn't work, but I wonder if there's something not rash about that, about just asserting yourself at the moment of decision and just saying like, no, don't do this. Like if nobody says that, then maybe nothing happens. And so maybe he sees that as a crucial moment. Um, Agreed. And then I think like another way, and this is something I guess that comes out in the article is something like we might be skeptical about thinking about Kent as, you know, being deceptive on one hand, you know, seeming one way, but being another, but in act one, scene three, Goneril tells Oswald to, like, you know, be kind of aloof and start to give bad service to Lear um, as a way to kind of provoke Lear or something along those lines. So you see a character tell another character to seem one way and to be another so that it seems like Oswald's rudeness is not calculating. So that it's not connected back to, or maybe I said Regan, I meant to say Goneril. Um, so that his rudeness is not connected to some kind of calculating ruler That it's just like, well, this person's being rude. I don't know why they're doing this to me. Um And... The That kind of provides, like, in 1.3, you see, look, here is the plan. In 1.4, Lear doesn't know about that. But then it's almost like with Kent, we don't get a 1.3. Kent decides on his own. Although his soliloquy does tell us a little bit, like, I'm not going to be straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have these different accents, I guess. Um, now, it seems like uh, y- you can ask this question about Kent. Is Kent an idiot <laughs> or is Kent a man of vision? Does he have a long-term goal? Because, as you know, you're kind of pointing out, if you just beat up this person just right away, like Kent's just causing Lear trouble. He's just going to increase the reputation of Kent, or sorry, Lear's followers as being riotous and unreliable and just bad people—people people that shouldn't be taken care of, people that you know Lear's not controlling. So it seems as if it could just be bad for. Lear so then are there longer term visions that Kent has and I guess there's one mentioned in the article and then there's one other possibility so I think McShane wants to suggest that Kent is hopeful that Lear will use his knights to take things back right now that in this moment Lear can win in a way that makes it easier to win in the future or that like more or less ends all this like let's just round up these irresponsible daughters right now and put an end to it. Um, And that Lear can sit. It's almost like there's a a sentence that Lear doesn't finish when he's thinking about when Cornwall and Regan won't talk to him. He thinks about what he wants to say to him, but then he stops for a second and says like, Oh, you know what? Maybe they are sick and tired. Maybe they're not blameworthy for not wanting to talk to me. Maybe they're not really doing anything wrong. And, in that moment, Kent maybe sees like Lear's impotent; he's not ready to retake the throne. And and more evidence of this version of the coup attempt is that um, Lear or sorry, Kent asks you know pretty early on, wait, why does Lear have less troops? Where are the, where are all the knights at? Why are there only like fifty guys here? So th- that's like some evidence to this effect um, or for this claim. And then another possibility is is Kent accelerating the destruction of some kind of peace that currently exists, even if it's a troubled peace? Insofar as at the end of Act 1, Scene 5, Albany, Goneril's husband, seems doubtful of Goneril's treatment of Lear, that he thinks that she's being too harsh um, and going too far. Whereas in light of Act 2, Scene 2, Kent's sort of rude words to Cornwall don't allow Cornwall to draw the same generous conclusion that Albany did. Rather, Cornwall, you know, puts him in stocks and um, can't draw the same conclusion. So it sort of drives Lear out faster than he would have otherwise. So then the question might be then, if Kent has been communicating with Goner, or sorry, with uh, Cordelia, could it be the case that this would invite France into England sooner than they would have otherwise. So I don't, I don't know what you think, uh, Bolingbroke, about these two different coup possibilities or if there are other possibilities that Kent has in mind.
1: So I think that I, I have to confess that when I read the article that, we, that we're discussing sort of on and off with this reading of Act Two, I don't find the claim that they're... Tr- that Kent is trying to provoke Lear to a coup on his own right there. All that convincing. I think that, I think that he's right in all of his readings of that. I think that he's right about Kent. He's right by his character. He's right that Caius isn't the same as Kent. And he's right that he's trying to do something in this scene, but mm-hmm. I'm more convinced by the idea that Kent is trying to accelerate things, as you say, so that, when things occur um, with Cordelia arriving as she, as she does that she'll be more apt to jump to King Lear's aid Mm -hmm. and that possibly he can provoke Cordelia and France to come sooner because he can send a letter and say, things have gotten worse. Both of the sisters have rejected Lear from their house. We need you now. And Mm -hmm. I think that I find that just more, Facially plausible, given that Lear is already losing support with his knights. The knights, I imagine, are probably starting to lose hope. One of them even, uh, he's, he, a knight is sent to talk to Goneril's, uh, to, to Oswald, when Oswald is short with Lear in Act mm-hmm. 1. And uh, he comes back and the knight says, I got to be honest with you. I think that we're on the outs. I, I really didn't like the way he was talking to me uh, as a servant from you. And he was very disrespectful and very short. And I, I think that you need to be worried. And mm-hmm. if this is the way this knight is feeling, I can't imagine that their confidence is really high. And if, especially if Lear doesn't seem like he's going to move to action. Uh, mm-hmm. So all that's to say, I, I find the, the plausibility of the coup that eventually does happen that, um that, Kent is trying to provide for that coup rather than create a new coup. I find that more convincing personally.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. That, I think that makes sense to me. Um, the sort of saying that Kent is crafty, but yeah. Could he expect Lear to take back commands now? Um, Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I'm glad that you called attention to the knight in act one, scene four. And even like that um, scene that you're drawing attention to made me wonder too, if like, are the knights being riotous at all? Like that guy was so polite and cordial. Like he was, you know, now maybe he's talking to the man, you know, he's talking to King Lear. So maybe he's more deferential than he would be otherwise to other people, but he's not given a name. You know, he's just called knight. So I know that it's not right to think of generally speaking, individual characters, merely being representatives of some other kind of type you know that i I think as you pointed out to me whether in podcasts or in conversation it seems like these shakespeare presents us with human beings like individuals who are particular um and i think that's right but I, i i wonder here though if like this guy is a knight and he doesn't have a name and he's polite here and really wants to help Lear, but sees that they're on the outs if there's some way in which at least generally speaking he represents the typical view of a knight. Um I don't know. I, I guess I was just I was wondering if Goner was kind of just egging on. Like it's almost like propaganda that the knights are bad. But but I don't know, is there I don't know. I d I don't remember any evidence of the knights being particularly bad, just that they have said to have been bad.
1: Yeah, there there's not. Um, and they do, I'll say uh I've seen a couple productions of Lear and fairly universally they have the knights being rowdy. Um, and it's pretty easy to do that without, you know, you don't have to give any fake lines or anything. Just, you know, Lear shows up after hunting is what, is what's happening, uh, when mm-hmm. he comes back and he can't find his fool. And in the stage production, I shot, saw all of the Knights came in and they're shouting and, and clapping and put each other on the back and draping themselves all over the furniture and just kind of being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking also of the Anthony Hopkins, version that uh, i think you can watch it on amazon prime uh they try and show goneril as a little bit more sympathetic in my opinion and i don't i don't think it's right i think that it's a wrong reading because Mm -hmm. it's it reminds me more of uh in Macbeth, there's this discussion that he has with the murderers before he sends them to kill Banquo and his son. I'm, I'm just giving spoilers all over the place, but these are, um, mm-hmm. you know, 500 year old plays. So I assume that people, uh, if they have been, had time. Yeah. They, yeah. They ho- hopefully you could have found time before then. But um, but in, in Macbeth, he has these murders. He's sending them to kill Banquo and his son. But before he does so, he makes this justification for them. And he says to them, uh, he, so we haven't heard all of their conversations, but it's clear this is a second meeting in the play. And he says to them, so we're agreed. Banquo is your enemy, right? And they're like, yeah, of course he's. I I hate Banquo. And he says, okay, so since we're agreed on that, are you going to kill him? Or are you too Christian to do that? And he's tr- sort of like mm-hmm. trying to mock them and tell them that they're not men. Mm-hmm. And um, this gets the right reaction, but it feels like, He's trying to create a narrative to justify something that's going to occur, and as it's he's he's making propaganda as as you sort of were suggesting with Goneril, and it seems Goneril's conversation with Oswald, where she's just like, right, we agree his knights are out of order, right? Yes, mm-hmm. okay. So now we need to say this to Regan so that she can know how bad it is, so that she can do something about it. Right. Um, it seems like they're trying to justify the the wickedness that they're going to do, um, more than it seems to me that that it's true. There's no textual evidence that it's true. It's only on Goneril's word, and she's not reliable, in right. for, for any other reason. Um, and then then the one other point, I agree that I think that the night. I, I actually this was this is one of our moments of discovery that we had we had a few of them the first time we talked. I, I had yeah. never thought of the night in that light. Um, just as I was talking, it occurred to me that he represents uh two things there right he he's polite and he's very um eloquent and careful in his speech i mean Lear he's represented as if he were a very wise king at some point i'd be surprised if he had a bunch of foolish riotous rude knights around they would presumably would be mm-hmm. courageous and and intelligent and this right. this knight seems to represent that you know he he's not only uh eloquent but he's also maybe speaking out of turn a little bit and telling Lear, like, I think you need to understand the situation you're in. He's not, he's now one of three people telling him that, right, Mm -hmm. with the full Mm -hmm. tent and this knight. And so, um, it goes to two things. It shows that the knights are maybe not riotous and it also goes to show that um, that the knights perhaps are not of a disposition that they could be riled up to attack Goneril and Regan right away either. That that maybe they're not hot to trot and that Uh, they can see how things are and they're seeing how Lear's reacting. And uh, unless Kent has been talking to them and trying to prepare them, which we don't have any textual evidence for, I just don't see how a coup could be affected with that group of people.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Like on one hand, it's almost as
0: if they're loyal enough that if Lear was inspiring, they would do it. Mm -hmm. But if or to the extent that Lear presents himself as, at this point, and I think you're right to say that he must have been a highly impressive and admirable king in the past, and that's part of why he expects that people will treat him well afterwards, maybe. That, like, I, you know, did all these good things, and then I treated my daughters well at the end, or at least two of them. Uh, why am I not being treated better? That that's, like, part of his grave disappointment. But, that, yeah, I think you're right. That if... Yeah, they're <laughs> they're, like, self-controlled. They're not, like, hot or something like that they're not fiery as cornwall is described as um at least as they're presented as far as i can tell and so in that way it seems like lear might have he would have to give some kind of inspiring speech or show them that he deserves to rule whereas it seems like increasingly it seems like he doesn't deserve to rule um, and it is kind of interesting like that well i don't know Goneril and regan can just kind of take away the knight <laughs> yeah he's sort of like well i'm gonna go with the daughter that lets me have more and then she's like i'm not gonna really have any oh can i go with you instead you'll let me have a few right and then they're like no I actually can't have any but it's like if they can just say that he can't have them and that's enough like they're in
1: charge like he's not the king anymore right what what if what if he had come i mean and the knights must perceive this and the fool does perceive this he says uh well i i the the one in particular that that i remember is that um Lear says something about how Goneril has been frowning a lot recently and she shows up and she's frowning and he said, and the fool says, wasn't your life happier when your daughter's frown or smile had no bearing on your status in the kingdom? (laughs) Um, But now it does is the implication that, that Goneril has some say over what happens with Lear, even though he said, I'm going to keep my title, I'm going to keep a hundred knights, and I'm going to keep all of the honors in addition that are owed to a king. Uh, His daughters say, you're, you're not. And he, in a way, it seems it's, it's almost pathetic. You know, when, when he's reasoning with them about the knights, it's just like, Oh, but do I have to, I'd really like to keep them. It's like, how is there, how is there a discussion? Why is it being discussed? He, he should be that there should, there should be no, um, it it just doesn't make any sense if he actually has this power. It's, it's as if he never did. Uh, from from the beginning of the play, it's as if he he did give up power and never never had it. Right.
0: So then if it's the case that Kent is as perceptive as he seems to be, uh, or as we've presented him as, as and as that article suggested, could he not see this too? Like so then wouldn't he be proposing a different kind of coup, a Cordelia sort of uh-huh. coup, as opposed uh-huh. to this as you're saying this. So now I'm sure I mean, since this is such like a you know perceptive article, I wonder uh what the scholar would say. I don't know. You know, maybe we can reach out to him. But um but anyway, yeah, this makes it more convincing to me that a Cordelia coup is much more intended than a night coup in this exact moment.
1: Yeah. I, I just I find it I found it facially more convincing, but as we discussed it, I think it's 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 it would be a hard, it's a hard argument to make for the knight coup. Uh you and I you and I had talked about some possibilities for why he would want the knights but um uh I don't know maybe lear just hasn't had the will to carry out any anything that the knights could any service the knights could really do for him other than being his hunting buddies and then uh, <laughs> that's it. Right.
0: Right. No, well, that makes sense. So then um let's discuss act two scene four um so act two scene three was just edgar giving a soliloquy as we you know described in the um opening sort of saying he's going to take on a disguise and he wounds himself like edmund does and he takes on a disguise like uh kent does and he is out you know, on outside of the city, so to speak in the way that Lear ejects himself at the end of act two, scene four. So there, there there'll be interesting things to talk about with Edgar soon, but maybe Mm -hmm. not yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But so in act two, scene four, Lear arrives at Gloucester's castle. um, And he sees Kent and the stocks, and he is horrified by this. Um, Just, you know, Lear's just like, no, Kent says, "Yes." And Lear says, "No, I say." And Kent says, "I say, yeah." And Lear says, "By Jupiter, I swear, no." Kent says, "By Juno, I swear, I." Um, and you know, Lear goes on to say that Kent being in the stocks is worse than murder. Um, that, yeah, this shouldn't be permitted to happen. And so, this is some evidence maybe that Kent did want to be seen in the stocks. And at the end of Act Two, Scene Two, Gloucester says, "Hey, man." Uh, you know, Kent, maybe I'll talk to him. Maybe I can tell, talk to him about getting you out of the stocks. And Kent says no. So I think it is deliberate, and this is something um, the article does say, is that Kent really wants to be seen in the stocks by Lear. That how, Whatever kind of coup that he wishes for, Lear seeing him in the stocks is a necessary condition of whatever plot is going to happen moving forward if Kent has some designs, um, which I think he did, certainly does. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so what's what's striking to you about Act two scene four? are there any observations that you would like
1: to share about it? Um, I think I think it just brings to brings to the culmination all of these things that were that we've been talking about with Kent. He finally sort of gets to demonstrate to Lear how bad his situation is and the fool takes advantage of this as well, uh, giving him lots of lots of comments that are obnoxious and, and difficult. Uh, I had some observations about Lear, which I mentioned I think I'd rather talk about next time. Um, mm-hmm. But but it does just seem to me, it seems to me that there is there has to be some intentionality in it because this does, what what occurs as a result of it, right? I think that it's possible that Lear could have come in gentler, if Kent had come in gentler and he would have contented to give up 50 of his nights, maybe he would have gone back to Goneril's house. Maybe he would have gone to Regan's house. I don't know. And he would have been okay. And things would have, it would have, uh, borne the issue out for a couple more months or something. But instead, Kent has provoked the conflict and he's brought it right out into the public. And now everything has to come to a head. We have, um, we have Edmund accusing Edgar of consorting with the Knights. Um, I think that that may have been an act two or scene two, but, uh, mm-hmm. and then we have Lear responding to Kent and, and blowing up over it. And then he, he has this assumption. He's like, Oh, well, Goneril would do something like this, but Regan wouldn't. This is a mistake, and when I talk to her it's going to be fixed, and he's trying to be so gentle and talk with her. And then he remembers what has happened with Kent, and it just blows him into an outrage, and he's never able to recover from it. And right. the result of that is that he l- does lose his mind, and there's three different parts of this where he begins to lose his mind, um, and he tries to push it down. It's almost like a, a the feeling of when you're, when you have tears welling up in your throat. Um, ha- having a lump in your throat. That's what his madness seems like. And he's trying to st- push it down and prevent that from happening over and over mm-hmm. again. But eventually um, he gives into it and runs off. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I just think it's a, uh, it, I think, I think that if you read it in isolation, if you read scene two and scene four on their own, you be like, Oh, good old Kent. You know, he's like a dog. He can't help himself. He attacks everybody. And, and the result is he's in the stocks and he looks like a dummy and, And Lear gets angry. Uh, If you read it in the way we've been discussing, I think that scene four sort of just brings everything home. Right.
0: Right. And I think something you noticed and I noticed was that when Kent reports to Lear what happened, maybe you already talked about this actually uh, a little bit, but like when uh, Kent reports what happened, he sort of emphasizes. Yeah. Oh, you did talk about this, but he maximizes the fault of Cornwall and Regan and tries to minimize his own fault. Like, yeah, I was like, as you had said, I'm carrying out your interests, Lear. Yeah. You know, Oswald and I got into this scrape, but like that's, that's it. You know, he doesn't say any of the words that he said to Regan and Cornwall. And this is designed to maximize the shock that, you know, Lear is supposed to be feeling. Um, and his anger, you know, since he thinks of himself as a king, um, So that's one thing to add. Something else I was curious about, although I find it perplexing, and so I have very little to say about it precisely because I find it so perplexing, is that um, in Act 2, Scene 4, it's like at about line 92, uh, Kent says, well, maybe I'll read some of the Fool's lines, uh, just a few of them Mm -hmm. that he says. So here's the Fool's speech. Um, early, this is around line 74 on page 101 in the Folger edition. The fool says this, he's talking to Kent. We'll set thee to school, to an ant to teach thee there's no laboring in the winter. Uh, All that follow their noses are led by their eyes, but blind men. And there's not a nose among twenty, but can smell him that's stinking. Let go thy hold when a great wheel runs down a hill lest it break thy neck with following. But the great one that goes upward, let him draw thee after. When a wise man gives thee better counsel, give me mine again. I would have none, but knaves follow it, since a fool gives it. That, sir, which serves and seeks for gain, and follows but for form, will pack when it begins to rain, and leave thee in the storm. But I will tarry, the fool will stay. And let the wise man fly. The knave turns fool that runs away. The fool, <clears throat> the fool, no knave, per D. Uh, and the note says, this means French for by God. And Kent says, What? Where learned you this, fool? And the fool says, Not in the stocks, fool.
1: <laughs>
0: so there's a lot to say about the speech. Maybe just to say a couple of provisional things. It seems as if the fool is saying something like, Why are you helping? Lear, it's winter time. This is the time of death. This is the end of a cycle. It's the end of a regime. You're holding on to something that doesn't exist anymore. Do you really want Lear to be the king again? Is that what you're hoping for? Um, this wheel is going down the hill. So it's almost like um when Kent prays to fortune at the end of Act Two, Scene Two, he imagines, you know, some kind of wheel. It brings you down, but then it brings you back up. But the fool is kind of saying, like, no dude, this wheel is just going downhill. This is not a cyclical wheel. It's not one of the, it's not a nice wheel. This is a wheel that's bad and you will be destroyed by it. And it's not good for you to do it. But then I guess what I find so perplexing is that the fool then says, but I will tarry. The fool will stay. Um, which is to say, the the fool seems to bring out a pretty convincing case as far as i can tell that helping lear is kind of like a foolish enterprise it's stupid like Mm -hmm. he made a huge mistake he broke up his kingdom his daughters are worse than he thought that they were and he's not competent enough to rule again as great as he might have been he's no longer great so it would seem to be the case that kent's obscured course is a mistake in so far as He's like putting his bet on the wrong horse. Like somebody else should be ruling, not Lear. Like maybe it shouldn't be the sisters, but it's not Lear that should be ruling. And Kent seems to have like put all of his effort behind helping Lear regain the throne when that might ultimately be a kind of mistake. But then I guess, yeah, the perplexing thing is why is the fool still with Lear? Why is he with him? What motivates him? What's And what, what is he getting at when he's like, Kent, don't do that, but also I'm going to help him. I I guess I just find it confusing and I don't really have a convincing thing to say about it.
1: Yeah, um I think I think that I, all all of that's very good, especially the the idea move your take take your opinions off of Lear and give them to someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh there's there's a viable candidate that arises later in the play. Mm-hmm. And I think that um I don't know that that's necessarily who the fool has in mind. He hasn't made himself a viable candidate yet. He has to go through um, a heavy educational experience that Lear experiences as well. But um, I think that, uh, I think that that's good. And I think that that is a message of the play in general, that, that you have to, you have to always look to the future, that this, this old age message is not one to be neglected. Although Lear doesn't deserve his treatment. He also probably shouldn't rule. And he knew that. I mean, didn't he know that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) He he chose to give up the kingdom. (laughs) And so and so uh now the fool following Lear, there's maybe one far fetched thing that we could say about it, but it would require us to dig all the way down to the very last scene of the play.
0: And 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 maybe we'll
1: talk about it then. You so what? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think when we get to that
0: last scene, of the play, we should talk about the, we can just say like the theory, just, you know, if you're reading the play that like the theory that Cordelia is potentially the fool, like disguise. um, Yes. Since they never appear together on stage and there's a line that you're alluding to that happens in that scene. It's more suggestive of this as a possibility, which I think, I think it's too soon to talk about it, but. I think it is something to keep in mind as a potentiality, as far as mm-hmm. interpreting the play goes. It's as far-fetched as you say, but it's also quite interesting. What if if you like look at the play in that way, it does read quite differently. So it's like a worth a worthwhile consideration, even if it doesn't turn out to be the case.
1: Yeah, and and I think that it it does. It's the only, off the top of my head. I mean, I, I haven't thought too very much about that particular that particular comment from the fool, which is very suggestive and interesting. It's, Mm -hmm. it's really the only textual explanation that I can give aside from the, the obvious that you point out that the fool is a fool. And I mean, he's, he seems intelligent and he seems to have his grips on some things, but um, he, he is who he is. He's not a political creature. Where would he go if he left Lear? And that's a point that he makes as well, um, uh, not, to, not to go too far afield on this, but um, Socrates uh, was killed for what he said, whereas Aristophanes said a lot of the same things um, in similar tones, even, even making some of the same observations as Socrates and mocking yeah. the gods of the city. And he got awards and applause and laughter and, and so forth, whereas Socrates got killed. The fool can do and say a lot of the same things as Kent, and Kent gets thrown in the stocks, and the fool doesn't. And so, the fool's role as the fool, as Lear's fool, uh, it has some benefits to it. Even if, even if it's a sinking ship, he's not going to get killed or anything. Probably, he's just going to be the fool until the end, and then whenever it ends, he wanders off and hopefully finds something to do. But until then, I guess he's just going to ride it out. Yeah, there's like a line in Twelfth Night with the fool there
0: who seems to get a name, and where the other fools don't. Feste,
1: Feste, oh. one of my
0: favorite characters. Oh yeah, like, but I think there's a line. I forget if it's Olivia says this to him or if he says it, but that there's no slander in an allowed fool. That mm-hmm. that you could say like being a fool is a kind of mask that a wise man might help themselves to. Um yes. So I I tend to like almost like want to read. This is going, I don't know, goes goes too far away, but want to read into the fools of Shakespeare, the potentiality that those are philosophic figures at the same time that I don't want to be dogmatic about that and just presuppose that that's the case. So it's like you have to follow them pretty carefully. But then it would be pretty interesting if the fool in Lear is a philosophic type or if he's not, but if he is like what, what, uh, yeah, what does he get out of like, hmm? what philosophic motive could be fulfilled by attending Lear? Is it just, well, he provides my material benefits and nobody else will if I don't hang out with him. And, well, he has no material benefits now that he's out on the heath, but I guess I'm, he's my guy. Like, it'd be kind of curious. As, I'm curious as we read the play to figure out, like, is the full philosophic or is he sub-philosophic um, as far mm-hmm. as his concerns go?
1: um just what as you were speaking i i had two thoughts uh mm-hmm. so first to your thought um this is the guy that i have to follow him and and he gives me my my sustenance or whatever there's mm-hmm. been the suggestion that socrates hung out with some of the the wealthy people he did who were not Crito in particular uh to give him money so that he wouldn't die um and uh and you and i discussed that i think after after the last episode when we were off when we were not Mm -hmm. recording and so if the fool is thinking that then if socrates was thinking that then okay that puts him in the same tradition as socrates one other suggestion this is a very uh deep cut and it's kind of a hard one it's one that i haven't explored fully and i I emailed paul Cantor about it actually because i was Mm -hmm. curious and he he um he didn't encourage me in this direction, but I still think there might be something. Um, (laughs) When I read Timon of Athens, Uh I felt pretty convinced that there was, I've I've read someplace that it's like a proto Lear that Mm. um, Shakespeare is preparing to write Lear. And that's why Timon's kind of incomplete. It has some details that don't make a lot of sense in it and everything. People say it's a bad play. I don't think I agree. It's bad. It's not his best play though. Um, In it though, there is this, Man who is foolish in that he gives away more than he ought to. And Mm -hmm. as a result, he runs off into nature and um, is no longer a part of society, which is what happens to Lear. Mm -hmm. One of the characters in that play who serves a very similar role to Lear's fool is a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And that is a I don't I don't know what more I can say about that, but uh to the question could Leader's Fool be a philosopher, that was I I had alarm bells go off in my head that I think uh it is a possibility if we were to compare those plays, there might be something there.
0: That's a really interesting parallel. Uh I I think I read Timon of Athens out loud once, but whatever. It's just it's not in my memory bank anymore. <laughs>
1: um
0: but I think that's I don't know, I think that's a good way to end um, unless you have any other closing thoughts.
1: No, I think that's good.
0: All right. Well, uh, Brian Cerberus Wilson and Brook are out.